0: I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks With The Deal with Steve Lippin, the chairman and CEO of Gladstone Place Partners, a financial and strategic communication firm he founded in 2017. Steve, thanks for joining us.
1: David, it's great to be here.
0: So we're we're going to talk about a a few things today. First of all, your practice, which ranges from M&A to activism to shareholder transition, Uh, Your uh, work at Gladstone Place Partners, uh, uh, founding it, uh, building out the team, how you see it growing, Uh, situations in your career where, as a communications professional, you you feel that you've really made a, a difference in a transaction, and finally, your very strong interest in food and wine, and especially natural wine.
1: Well, David, I'm excited to be here, and you've hit all my favorite topics: deals,
0: food, and wine. So, starting with with M and A, which is, is perhaps the, the core of your practice, you you worked on two uh, really significant transactions last year: uh, Disney on its acquisition of 21st Century Fox, and the Annex Fair situation, which is is still ongoing. Let's let's start with Disney. Uh, very challenging situation, contested. Could you discuss that situation and in and particular what what was interesting about it uh, from the standpoint of a communications?
1: Sure. Um, well, again, thank you, David. It's great to be here. Uh, the Disney deal did close last year, so that was a transaction that we worked on in, in 2018 and then and then closed in 19. There were a few interesting things about the deal. You mentioned that it was contested. We originally worked on the friendly announcement of the acquisition of the bulk of the Fox assets by Disney. But it was very clear that Comcast was uh, around the situation it was in the proxy, and there were a, sort of a steady stream of leaks about what Comcast may or may not do. I think what was interesting about that is a couple of things. First of all, it was one of the first big deals in the new Justice Department, the new administration. You know, I think there was generally, particularly given the litigation that AT&T was facing, you know, with the Time Warner deal, there was a question of how the government Uh, would look at it from an antitrust standpoint. Then, of course, you had a good old-fashioned dogfight, really, when it came to the bidding war. You know, and back to your point about where communications and investor relations can make a difference, we sort of have one foot in IR, and one foot is in what I would call media advocacy, and ensuring that clients are telling their stories well to shareholders, but knowing how important the media is, ensuring that we could do everything we could to put the company's best foot forward. When Comcast came in, there really was a fight over uh, the antitrust issues. And part of our job was to show the potential antitrust challenges that Comcast was gonna face, as well as the strategic benefits of the Fox transaction. And I think you could fast forward, you know, look at Disney's stock price now and say that the market has bought into that story. At the time, stock was sort of around 100, maybe even under 100. And then the other important thing, particularly in a, in a contested situation, is not just helping companies tell their stories, but who are the third parties that should and could weigh in? In that case, there was a significant amount of commentary in the antitrust community about uh, horizontal versus vertical mergers, is typical in a contested situation you know, each each party is obviously trying to put their best foot forward and and, uh, undercut the, the other one's arguments. And the fact is, and this came out in the proxy very clearly, that the Fox board believed that there'd be greater antitrust concerns over a Comcast deal. Having said all that, I think we were obviously very gratified that Ah, uh, justice approved that with relatively few uh, restrictions. I mean, they you know they had to sell some assets, but but um, in the end, you know, it was a transaction where I think the media advocacy piece was an Im- critical part of sort of our job.
0: And a couple of things. First of all, you you mentioned leaks. Do you anticipate leaks and how you're going to respond when they happen, or is it much more, reactive because you know that's always a possibility but you never quite know where the leak is going to come from or what it's going to be no i
1: mean leaks are as a former journalist you know leaks could be intentional they could be unintentional what's most important in our business is that you're you're planning accordingly and i think the default uh, supposition is that things are going to leak this deal even before comcast stepped in Ah, uh, publicly, the the deal was first broken uh, by by David Favor of CNBC, and you know part of our job is certainly to ensure that clients are prepared. But you may still not change your your course of action. Um, you know, even though there are leaks, it it absolutely creates a level of instability and volatility both in the markets and also in the press, or people are chasing what's true and, and what's not true. In the end, the leaks create noise, but the fundamentals of the deal and the strategy are sort of what wins out.
0: You, you talk about media advocacy in a, in a transaction like that, which is you know, a massive transaction uh, you know, covered by you know, any significant media outlet. How, how detailed is that advocacy plan? Do you, do you get down to the level of thinking about individual reporters, how you're going to reach out to them, what they respond to, maybe who from the the advisor team or internally the client is going to talk to them?
1: Yeah. So we look at it as a campaign and, um, individual publications, the reporters at those publications, and then within the publications, you know, is there somebody covering just the transaction? There's somebody else who's just going to focus on antitrust. Is there somebody who's looking at the entertainment side of it? So we had the entertainment press, the business and financial press for sure, and then all of the antitrust um, reporters and editors. And so, we, we take an almost encyclopedic view of it. We absolutely have a, a call list. We have outside advisors or company executives, and we need to touch anybody who's going to be writing on that, whether or not they've written yet. We want to understand who's going to write, what, the, the, what they've written in the past. You know, Do they have a particular bent one way or the other? Somebody who covers entertainment, may have a different set of questions, will have a different set of questions that somebody who is steeped in antitrust mm-hmm. and the deal reporters may be interested more in things like price and personality where the antitrust reporters want to know horizontal, vertical, overlap. What, you know, what are the criteria by which the Justice Department was going was to weigh in? And we view our job as never being, never letting the client be surprised.
0: So, moving to Annexter, which is a, a another contested situation, multi billion dollar, uh, a, a less prominent industry. Tell us about that. One.
1: Sure. Well, that was interesting because Anexair signed up a transaction with a private equity firm, a very well respected firm, Clayton Dubilier and Rice, and they had a ghost shop. You know better than me that you know, how many go shops actually result in in uh, a second a second or third bid? In this case, there very much was a, a party that was written about in the proxy that, again, it was very clear in the proxy, uh, party A was willing to pay a higher price, but there were concerns about antitrust and concerns about financing. So this was a good example where the ghost shop absolutely worked, that it ended up being a public, sort of no other way to do it when you have a friendly deal in a go shop, a public back and forth between the private equity firm and Wesco, an industrial competitor. And so that was surprising because there was such a heated competition after the go shop. And what was also interesting was the PE versus industrial. And in the end, I think shareholders did very well. I think the board looks very smart in the way they transact the way they transacted that and obtained a level of assurances that the deal was going to, you know, close on a a, um, expedited basis. The other thing that was interesting about that, to your point, Disney may certainly sound sexy than electric cable, but actually for what we do um, it's just as important and just as interesting. And um, it was also going on during Christmas and new year. So it was really sort of around the clock transaction which is part and parcel of, of what we do. And then the last part, you know, was Sam Zell as a chairman and owned over 10% of the stock. So the board very much had skin in the game.
0: Switching to a, a situation where you, you may be somewhat limited in what you can say, but but I want to discuss at least a little bit. You're, you're advising uh, WeWork uh, in, in, in its various challenges that it's faced over the last year. Again, understanding that you may be limited in what you can say, can you talk a little bit about that situation and its its implications?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get into the details be, be, because they are a client, but I'd say a few things. There were clearly lessons learned from a governance standpoint with regard to the 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 makeup of the prospective board. And you saw Goldman Sachs come out and declare that they wouldn't take any uh, U.S. listed companies, U.S. and Europe listed companies public without having at least one woman on the board. In this day and age, you would have thought that we all learned that lesson. But, you know, the other, the other big lesson was clearly just about the IPO market. I mean, I think the sort of the unicorn boom had already crested, right? Uber had gone public the air was starting to come out of the unicorns, but it did feel like we were sort of right in that firestorm where investors decided they didn't want fast-growing but money-losing companies to go public, uh, that they wanted to see the path to profitability. And it doesn't mean that you can't take a company public that's that's in the red, but clearly you need to show that path to profitability. And so I think there are important lessons for the markets and for advisors who are advising on prospective IPOs and prospective transactions.
0: And that's a situation where a number of reporters are preparing books or in a few cases, uh, straight to screenplays.
1: Movies, books. Yep. Podcasts. There's a new podcast that came out.
0: How do you manage those challenges Uh, from a communications perspective, you know, given that they're they're longer horizon, but they can obviously have a significant effect on how the company is viewed for years to come. Yeah.
1: I mean, as as far as we know, there's at least two books and at least two movies, uh, maybe three movies. Uh, The the two journal uh, team members are writing a book. Uh, Business Insider is working on a movie. And it's unfortunately got all the sex appeal that you'd want in, in a tale like that. Where we come into play, again, not talking about these individual situations, is what level of cooperation are, are the protagonists going to, you're going to have, how you're going to cooperate, whether, to be honest, whether cooperating helps or hurts. And you really have to ask that, because I've had many clients that have had books written about them or their CEOs or or whomever. And you sort of, you know, you have to take the Hippocratic oath in this business. First, do no harm. And the default isn't always, well, we're going to cooperate. Now, uh, am I of the view that people need to tell their own stories or others won't? Generally speaking, yes, I am of the view that, and that could be in a newspaper article, that could be on CNBC in an activist fight, but... I would rather know what where somebody is coming from and have the ability to potentially influence that versus simply saying that the, there's nothing we can do. They're going to write what they're going to write. And even if that's the case, again, as a former journalist, I know that when you do interviews, that, that can make an impression and better off trying to get your points, you know, versus just saying, forget it, you know, it's going to be negative anyway, so I'm not going to bother. So... We have a number of journalists on staff, and I think that for us, media engagement and media advocacy is an important part of what we do. And um, because I grew up in the journalistic community, I do think I have a real sense for what journalists are looking for, how they operate, the fact they aren't all out to get, you know, clients that they have a job to do and we have a job to do. And we need to sort of keep that frame of reference when you, when you tackle something like, A book or a movie
0: switching to activism what are you what do you expect to see this spring any any new wrinkles
1: you know i'd say that you're seeing a lot of newer faces and and more upstarts among the activists not to say that the largest the larger more established players are obviously elliott and third point and starboard are sort of as active as ever but you are seeing sort of a, a crop of you know either offsprings from the larger firms or firms that you know, to be honest and quite cynically, just want to make a name for themselves and can sometimes gain traction in the press because of that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one thing if Elliot takes a stake, you know, in AT and T or in a Arconic or, or other things that I've worked on, but sort of a no-name hedge fund taking a small stake in an established company, you know, you sort of need to question whether it's for real, whether it's for their own marketing purposes. In terms of trends. Look, I think we've seen the non-agreement agreements, right? you know, cooperation agreements rather than settlements uh, or sort of a non-settlement settlement in the case of, of AT&T Elliott. And you, see, you are seeing examples of that where um, more of it's behind the scenes um, than sort of the public brawls. Again, doesn't mean you're not gonna see public brawls. In terms of the season coming up, I think that clearly Governance and ESG are on the lips of, of uh, investors and media and others, and so I think it will be interesting to see how activists use the, the umbrella of ESG. I mean, you're starting to see that, but I think you're going to see more of that to try to find weaknesses beyond sort of operational weaknesses
0: in a company. Just briefly wanted to touch on CEO succession, uh, something that that firms such as yours frequently work on. Any situations in the last year, say, or a couple of years that that have been particularly interesting or challenging for you? Well,
1: CEO transitions is an important part of of what we do because the way we define the firm, it's sort of financial communications and investor relations. That's one big bucket. Issues in crisis is sort of the second. And then the last is corporate governance communications. And that could be everything from CEO and board changes to compensation, proxy disclosures, things like that. You know, from my purview, boards are boards have CEOs' feet to the fire. I mean, last year, there were over 1,600 CEOs that, that stepped down. Some were in normal course. Some were, you know, were asked by the boards to step down. And I think what we're generally seeing is that, you know, boards don't want to wait five years if the strategy is not working or the leader isn't working. And boards are, I don't want to say very quick, but I think are responsibly looking at, at performance and accountability. And so I think you're seeing boards that are holding CEOs accountable. You know, we were privileged to work on the transition and the ascension of Julie Sweet to become CEO of Accenture. And I think that it's a world-class company. It got a lot of attention. Julie is an amazing executive. It did get attention in in, in part because it was the first woman ever named to the CEO position at Accenture. And I think we can all agree that there are still not enough women who are leading big public companies uh, in the United States. That's obviously not why she was named CEO, but it did draw attention to that fact. And, you know, maybe we'll get to a a world where it's not as big news every day that a woman is being named to a prominent CEO position. We're not there yet. Uh, I hope we get there soon. So the issues around diversity and diversity on boards, it's not just the CEO, is how diverse is your corporate board? And I think boards are rightly so, uh, being proactive, and when they're not proactive, they're being reminded by um, investors, by the governance community, that they need to get this right.
0: Switching to to your firm, Gladstone Plays Partners, could you could you talk a little bit about you know how you've gone about building the firm, how you've thought about hiring, and where you see the firm in three to five years?
1: Sure. So after working at a large firm for many years. I had the idea, and and looking to the investment banking boutiques on Wall Street as a a model, I had the idea of if we could take decades of experience in relationships, hire really talented and motivated people across different disciplines, and partner with our clients to address sort of their increasing demands for effective communications and investor relations. You put that all into a highly focused boutique model, that was the dream. That was the goal, to to take the best of communications and investor relations, not necessarily needing armies of people and nor needing footprints around the country or around the world. I mean, we actually consider ourselves a global firm with global capabilities and have clients in Europe, in Asia, North and South America, that our capabilities are global, even though we are based in New York, and we have an office in San Francisco.
0: And in terms of hiring, what were you looking for?
1: Sure. So if I looked at the group of very talented people I have, I'm probably the least educated of all of them. Two or three MBAs, master's in accounting, two master's in journalism, people who have come up through investor relations. So we have people who have been, you know, former heads of investor relations, people who are top, former top journalists, and people who have come up through Communications advisory. We started the firm with 12 people when we started in October of 17, and now we're seventeen professionals in in New York and, and San Francisco. And so for the for our client needs, we really do need this breadth of experience. We need people who have media chops. We need deep, sophisticated financial analysis, whether it's helping write an investor presentation or critiquing work that a client has done that wants our feedback. And then the last piece is pros of communications, how to project manage account, how to handle an IPO in a different market. So um, I love the fact that we have this breadth of experience. I mean, we have accounting majors and we have English majors and sort of everything in between.
0: As you look back on your career, which situation uh, or situations would you say are, are ones in which you've, you've made a real difference as a communications professional.
1: Yeah. I mean, in some respects, of course, we hope that in each situation we're adding value and companies that may not be household names may not have a communications infrastructure in the same way that large companies do that we can make a real difference in, in the CEO transition of Armstrong flooring For that board and management, it was the most important uh, decision they've made in a long time, and we need to get that right. But if I look back historically, and you you brought up contested situations, and so um, one of the biggest contested situations I worked on was InBev's hostile takeover of Anheuser-Busch in the spring and summer of 08 on the precipice of the financial crisis. And in that situation, and I would say in hostile takeovers generally, the communication strategy is as much the takeover strategy because it's all being played out publicly. And I think that was a situation where it was a combination of sort of the overwhelming strength of our story, the credibility that not just management, but that the nominees of we were going to replace Anheuser-Busch board. And we got a lot of commentary that the, the, the full slate could easily be a, a board of a world-class company. By definition, you're on offense, um, and you do have the upper hand. But I think it was a situation where communications really, this is the feedback we received, uh, made a difference, made a big difference between the success and failure of achieving the client's goals. And it was forged in fire, both in terms of doing a a hostile and then then heading into the close when literally banks were, banks in our syndicate. We're simply going out of business. And it was a it was re- very exciting at the end to get to close because at the time I literally thought it was the last $50 billion left on the planet. And then that ended up being a game changer for what became Anheuser-Busch InBev and really catapulted this Belgian Brazilian company. Onto to the global stage. And of course, from there, they ended up acquiring Modelo and then SAB Miller, which again, we were privileged enough to work on as well.
0: And, and finally, a little bit about food and wine. You're in particular a fan of, of natural wines. Uh, so maybe a, a few producers whose wines you really enjoy and then where you enjoy going out to eat with, with friends or, or clients or your family.
1: Sure. So I got into wines probably about 10 years ago and just love how every bottle is a story. And I loved learning about different styles, different regions. My wife and I are officially empty nesters. And so we uh, were sort of on wine tour last fall, going to Bordeaux, to the Finger Lakes, to Sonoma and to Napa. And you're right that thanks to my daughter, who when she was a junior or senior in college, gave me a book by Alice Fearing, one of the gurus of natural wine, one of the most accomplished writers in natural wine. And that sort of opened up a whole new world that I that I didn't know existed. Now, I, I drink traditional wines, classics, and I also love to find um, natural or biodynamic with what they would describe as sort of minimal intervention. So I love Pet Nats now, sparkling wine that is um just lovely, lively, fresh. There's a producer in Loire, La Grange de Thane, who's just absolutely delicious. I found some natural wine up in the Finger Lakes. There's a winery called Bloomer Creek that is doing some amazing, amazing wines. And for the listeners in New York, I think the Finger Lakes is getting a lot more attention, but still remains underappreciated, I think. You're starting to see more wines from uh, from the Finger Lakes on some really high-end restaurants. I mean, Bloomer, Blue Hill, uh, Blue Hill Bloomer. a Bloomer Creeks wine. They had Cabernet Franc or a Pinot that was on the wine list at Le Cuckoo. But there are places on the North Fork. Channing Daughters is an incredibly creative winemaker, and they they're also producing not just Chardonnay and Cabernet. In fact, not really. They're, they're using grapes like Dornfelder and Blau-Frankish, wines that I had never even heard of that now I you know, I truly love. We went and visited Oregon, and one of my favorites out there is sort of a cult wine called Antiqua Terra. But we also visited a place called Beckham Estate, and Andrew Beckham actually produces his own cask, his own quevry and so we went into the, his shed. So he's both making wines, but also creating his own his own casks for them uh, for clay, his own wines. Clay casks. clay casks, absolutely. And it was amazing to see the making of those. And he's now selling those, you know, to other um, to other wineries as well, which is which is really cool. You introduced me to Close Ceron, and uh, I've now had that a few times. But I would say that for me. As much as, you know, people look at wine and they think Cabernet Sauvignon and Chardonnay and, you know, I was at a restaurant recently where somebody was ordering wine and they said, I hate Chardonnay and that's like saying I hate brown hair or something. <laughs> there, there's a hundred different ways to make, you know, Chardonnay from the West Coast buttery to lean and lean and mean uh, Chablis. So I love learning, you know, sort of the, the different styles. Alice and Olivier D'Amour for Chablis in the Rhone for Super Bowl. I brought, over, I brought over two things, a Bethel Heights Pinot Blanc, which is from uh, Oregon. And then I brought a Chateau Landra, which is in the Southern Rhone. So it's a, you know, a lighter style um, with a Grenache blend. I'll and and then going. just
0: one or two places in New York where you, you just love to eat.
1: I'm always in search of new restaurants. I just went to a new Korean restaurant called Jua, J-U-A, that just opened on 22nd Street, and absolutely love it. Um, I've also been loving Anton's, which opened up a few months ago. A huge fan of Racine's. Atomix is probably one of the most amazing meals I've, I've ever had, also Korean. I just got back from Japan for 11 days, so I don't do sushi takeout anymore. But I came back looking for as authentic a Japanese meal as I could get. And there's a place called Shoji at 69 Leonard. And the chef uh, trained in Kyoto for seven years and then another three years in Tokyo to learn more about sushi. And so that's another place that, that I would recommend. And one of my favorite chefs in New York is Dan Kluger, who originally worked you know, for Danny Meyer, became the executive chef at CORE Club, launched ABC Kitchen, and now has this amazing restaurant on West 8th called Loring Place. And so it's, it's sort of a casual setting, but an amazing dining experience and also a great wine list.
0: Well, well Steve, thank you so much for, for joining us for your insights into communications and sharing some of your passion for food and wine. David,
1: it's been great to talk to you about this and uh, best of luck on the podcast.
0: I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks With The Deal.